From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hey all, thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm your host, Marissa Polowitz, and this episode concludes my mini-series exploring the intersection of technology, privacy, and the law. It's been so fun hosting this series, and I thank you all for coming along for the ride. For my final privacy pod, I'm super excited to host another wonderful guest, Elizabeth Hine. She's the Vice President for Compliance and Data Protection at Foursquare Labs, Inc. Liz leads a team of compliance professionals who are responsible for the implementation of the company's privacy and corporate compliance program. Prior to that, she served as Senior Compliance Counsel at a Fortune 100 technology company, where she was responsible for advising the company on compliance with global trade and privacy laws and supported implementation of global compliance programs. Before going in-house, she was a partner in the international trade practice in the Washington, D.C. office of an AmLaw 100 firm. Please note, as always, all opinions expressed on the pod are solely mine and or Liz's and do not express the views or opinions of Foursquare or Loyola University Chicago. Liz, thank you so much for allowing me to interview you today. Welcome to the Podvocate. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I would love to hear a little bit about your background because you didn't start out in data privacy. And so I would just love to hear kind of where you started and then what prompted you to make the move into the data privacy and compliance space. Yeah, it's an interesting story. If you go way back, I was actually a dance major. So I had big dreams of being a ballerina then realized I needed to pay my school loans back and ended up in law school. Uh, My background at the time was always very international focused. So I focused on international law and I have a master's in international relations that I I did at the same time as I was doing my JD. Came out of law school and I became an international trade lawyer. So I focused on imports, exports, anti-dumping, countervailing duty, WTO, all of those cool things. I was in um, a large law firm in D.C. where I was a partner in the the international trade field until finally a colleague of mine asked if I wanted to go in-house. So I had made the jump to go in-house to HP. uh, And at the time, I was the global trade counsel for HP. But they said, you also need to handle privacy. And having done global trade, which can be pretty complicated sometimes, I thought, "How, how tough can privacy be? And those were famous last words in 2015. The EU passed a huge law. And ever since, uh, I've been doing almost primarily privacy. So I was at that company, it was uh, HP, for um, about five years, just over five years. And then I joined Foursquare about a year and a half ago. And here, I've really had the opportunity to not just practice law, uh, the, the privacy and compliance function actually Uh, reports into me. So I own the vision of the program and the implementation of the compliance program. And that was what was really exciting to me. I'm doing more than just advising a client on privacy issues. So that's how I came to be where I am now. 
sounds like being at Foursquare, you really get much more of an opportunity to shape product and have input on business strategy, which is super cool, especially for us privacy nerds that want, you know, privacy built into products, not just afterthought in products. That's That has been one of my primary goals since coming here. One of the challenges in the privacy space is how do you get to the very beginning of a product life cycle when the engineers and the product teams are just starting to think of something. Um, they have good intentions thinking about privacy, but they're not, they don't know the laws. They don't think about the implications necessarily downstream. And so that has been something my team and I have been very focused on here. Uh, oftentimes in compliance programs, you hear about the tone at the top. Do the CEO, the chief legal officer, the executive team, really advocate for strong compliance, privacy. Absolutely, no doubt about it. But my goal has also been bottoms up or in the middle. How do you make sure that compliance privacy is truly embedded throughout the organization? So we've taken steps to actually integrate privacy from the very beginning of product development. Now, what's fun about that for me is it, it, it gives me an opportunity to exercise muscles that uh, lawyers don't often get to exercise. So I spend a lot of time talking to engineers and to our product teams. Uh, it can be tough too. You learn an entirely new vocabulary when working in the tech field or working with engineers. We actually work very differently as a privacy team. Um, whereas lawyers write long memos and the answers are often, it depends, that doesn't work for engineers and product teams. They need answers. So we have actually shifted how we work. So we work on two-week schedules, two-week sprints, like engineers. We actually integrate into their engineering. It's called JIRA, their system for tracking projects and getting work done. We plan with them uh, at the beginning of the quarter to make sure that their priorities include privacy. So it's really been fun to shift how I've practiced law when I came here to make it more practical, more useful for our product and engineering teams. And that's really showing now as we're working on some huge um, product development. And to be honest, privacy is so hand in hand with product and engineering that not only is product driving strategy of the company, privacy is driving product strategy. And to be in that position where you are a valued member of the team, it's, it's really a great position to be in, especially these days. Yeah, selfishly um, and a little self-involved. This has always been kind of my midterm goal for kind of the way that I will get to work within the data privacy space is I actually come from uh, working in a tech background. And so I was always the soft side of tech. I was always the person that was translating from, you know, like the lay people to the technical people and trying to figure out kind of that like translation or the language that people will actually be able to understand. I love that you've incorporated the short-term sprint. It probably also makes your team feel a little bit more immediate instant gratification with getting work done, where I feel like a lot of times in law, it's like, you just keep going and it's not really like kind of a big deliverable every short period of time, which I think can make it really hard for folks to like stick on one thing and just keep trudging along, you know, much like three years of law school. <laughs> totally agree with that. I do like to see, you know, I, I like to see my team being successful and you're right. You get to see those little successes start to add up into a big project. It's also one of the challenges I've found. And 
I think that many listeners who are still in law school will see as they go into law firms or into corporate environments, lawyers are not always the best project managers. We have big concepts, challenging ideas. We deal in the gray. We don't have easy answers, but you you have to learn how to break that down and start to um, be able to break down complex concepts into bite-sized ideas in order to get those results and success. Uh, in addition to my team, we actually have, I call her the privacy and product, excuse me, the privacy product engineering whisperer. She's the one who can just magically translate what we are saying from a privacy perspective to engineering and product terminology. Um, yesterday on my team, I was working with one of our lawyers and one of our uh, program managers, and I was suggesting we proceed in one way and we create a matrix and red, yellow, green, talk about what the legal concepts are. They took me offline and said, there are no, there's no way the product and engineers are going to look at this. They need to hear it like that. And I think part of my learnings and leading my team is to learn when I'm not right and I can learn from everyone else. And so I step back and watch them succeed and learn how better to do things in the future. So that's another really cool part of my role. Yeah, and this is a little bit off the privacy topic and more just kind of like a how-to for maybe newly starting lawyers. I know that for me, I get lost seeing the forest through the trees and I, I can like see a huge gigantic problem and know that I need to be able to get to that point but reverse engineering the steps that it's going to take to get me there oftentimes are overwhelmingly intimidating. Do you have any tips or hints or tricks for breaking down a really kind of convoluted large problem into more digestible bite-sized pieces? So I've come at the, the privacy program here, I think in threes. So for me, we have three priority areas and everything we do revolves around those three priority areas. Those priority areas are huge. So it's making sure that we've got privacy baked into our product design process, making sure that our uh, process around honoring data subject rights is in place and making sure that we have good process in place to look at our third parties who may be touching our data. Those are huge issues. So each quarter then we start to chip away at those. What is something tangible we could do this quarter to get us a little bit further? A great example here is right now we're working on just a couple of documents, maybe three pages long, bullets, check marks, to translate what we want to communicate to our engineers around consent to give that to them, to, to free them up, to be able to think and innovate, but understand what our baseline requirements are for consent. And so that's something I've learned through my career. You cannot boil the ocean, don't even try. Find those three things, five things, stay laser focused on them. Things are going to come up here and there around and you'll need to adjust. But if you stay laser focused on those themes, I feel like you start to see the progress as you chip away at the little bullets underneath each one of those things. Thank you. That's super helpful. That approach to threes just like harkens back to my communications days because, you know, people think in threes, people remember lists of three things all the time. It's really easy for our brains to wrap around three ideas. I know that you've mentioned three major focus areas, but could you give us insight on some of the major legal concerns that you need to keep in mind in your current role on a daily basis? 
Absolutely. So Foursquare specializes in geolocation information. We are an expert in this space. So the data that we deal with, geolocation data, is considered sensitive by most uh, state and global privacy laws. And being that many of the laws are new or up and coming, especially in the US where you're really seeing a trend towards legislation, regulation, also fear around location data. I spend a lot of my time really focusing on how do I educate about location data, not just external um, stakeholders, but also internal stakeholders. Our engineers see lat longs and they just think that's just a latitude and longitude. But what I see is a latitude and longitude that an individual may have visited. So take that to mean an individual visits an abortion clinic that's sensitive information. And we need to make sure that we're taking steps to protect that information. And so those are the kinds of questions I'm asking myself throughout the day. As the engineers come up with new ways to think about data, looking at aggregated insights or movement patterns, it's not the individual level data that is interesting to us. It's more of the trends we still have to keep that in mind. People can be re-identified through location data. And so that's always a heightened awareness for me. That's really interesting. Backing up to kind of break it down for some of our listeners that may not be as technically experienced or steeped in privacy, geolocation data is not something that we've addressed on the podcast before. It's hugely important and it has a lot of broad uses and applications and collection points. So could you kind of give us the high level explanation of what people are actually talking about when they talk about geolocation data? Sure. So geolocation data can be collected. It's primarily collected through the use of apps on your device. Um, so ways you plug in the address and it's got to track you somehow. Those are the lat longs coming in from your phone. It's pinging against cell towers. Um, other apps have location data functionality. We have uh, two apps ourselves that have location data where you can check into locations. That's where Foursquare came from a number of years ago, where you could check in and become the mayor of your local neighborhood restaurant. That is the type of information that comes back to us and we process. And again, we're not interested in the individual level. We're interested in the movement patterns. Where do people move in the world? And so that's the kind of thing that comes to us. It's really important to understand, and this is something I talk a lot about with our engineers and product teams, that location data, really any data, should not be collected just for the sake of collection. Nor should we as app users allow that to be the case. And certainly Apple has taken steps towards enabling people to exercise choice location data should only be collected and you should only permit collection of location data when you're when you see a benefit from it if it's not benefiting you then they their companies have no reason to be collecting it and so that would be advice that i give to the to the listeners and advice that i take myself you know try to understand why do apps need your location data to provide the weather okay that makes sense to use a flashlight not so much. Yeah, it's a good reminder to think critically about what we're actually saying yes to every time we get an app and it asks us if it will allow us to track and if we want to use location data and if we want all of those things turned on or no. I think it just becomes so natural to just hit 
okay and not really think about it, but it is really important to kind of stop and think and reflect on like, what are you doing and why are you asking me to, to take this data and collect, keep this data on me? Exactly. Um, and there's, there's certainly uses for it too. I mean, um, for example, if you want to travel somewhere and you plug in an address and to Uber, they have to have the location data. So there's definitely purposes for it. There's also, you know, maybe you are interested in getting targeted advertising when you walk into Target. Maybe you want to know what the ads are when you get there. So there could be a use case there for the ad or for maybe a Target app. There are uses for location data. You just need to be aware of them and be comfortable with accepting the, the trade-off. Well, and on the flip side, there was that whole conversation surrounding um, targeted advertising and pregnancy when trends were being tracked for individuals and they started getting advertisements for like diapers and stuff. And people didn't either the, the individual themselves didn't know that they were pregnant or they were hiding it. And so it was kind of like a, a giveaway that they were pregnant. Yeah. And so Target was probably not the best example for me to use because that was the case. So <laughs> insert other home goods store, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I'm just picking on Target because it's an easy, it's an easy Target. It's so, <laughs> so, I mean, along the same lines of kind of, you know, data minimization and talking about all the kind of the rules surrounding how data is, are utilized and collected, uh, are there specific federal laws that pertain to geolocation data. And I know that there are when it comes to international law, which I'm sure we can touch on briefly and our listeners maybe don't wanna hear us go into GDPR too deeply, but I think within the US specifically, it would be interesting to hear like what governs geolocation data. So right now there is no comprehensive federal privacy law. Uh, there are privacy laws that relate to health data or to student data or things like that, but there is no comprehensive consumer privacy law. What we have now is California starting out with a new law that came into effect in 2020. That's now been refreshed and they have a kind of a new iteration of the law that went into effect at the beginning of this year. And in absence of federal law, other states now are beginning to implement legislation. We have uh, Virginia went into the effect at the beginning of the year. Colorado's coming, Connecticut, Utah, Iowa just passed a bill. And what we're seeing now is a lot of the legislation is it's kind of plug and play. These states have passed legislation. Other states can pass very similarly worded legislation. In that, geolocation data is often considered sensitive. Not all cases, not all states consider it sensitive, but most states consider it sensitive, meaning that you have to have explicit consent from individuals in order to connect, collect that information. Now, it's interesting because why is geolocation data sensitive? Certainly when you tie it to an individual, you can see how it's sensitive, but in and of itself, a location may not be considered sensitive. And so I think what we're seeing in the US in particular is this confluence of legislation that's happening. But then if you think back about a year ago when the Supreme Court decision on Dobbs leaked and then came out, that really changed the landscape on location data. And so governments and state governments that, were, that had bills in front of them and were looking at legislating in the privacy space suddenly saw that location data 
could be really significant and could really impact individuals. And so location data kind of shifted into this very sensitive territory. Now, how do we, how do we work with that? You know, from my experience at my company, we've always treated location data as sensitive, requiring consent. And we will continue to do that. We've also had internal policies around what we call restricted places. And around the same time as, same time as the Dobbs decision came out, um, but it was actually something we were working on beforehand, we coordinated with the Network Advertising Initiative, the NAI here in Washington, to create a set of enhanced standards around precise location data to, associated with sensitive locations. What those say is that we commit as a company that we will not take, use, share location data around sensitive locations. So abortion clinics, um, medical medical data associated or location data associated with medical locations affiliated with a, that, that infer a sensitive condition, oncology centers, religious places, mosques, churches, synagogues. We do not share any of that information and we are committed to not sharing that information. So it's self-regulatory. That's what we have at the moment. So when I met you, we were at the Privacy and Security Forum and we had a conversation surrounding the absence of data being data in and of itself. Can you give us insight into first the problem of the absence of data, denoting that somebody is in a sensitive location, you just don't know which one, and kind of how companies think about that issue? It's a tough one because uh, I've actually been talking to engineers about this and you can call, think about it like Swiss cheese. And right now where we may remove the data associated with a, a restricted location, if we don't have that data at all to begin with, there's an inference that can be made that someone may have gone to a sensitive location because it's just missing. So perhaps the phone is pinging from McDonald's to a home goods store to an oncology center, and then maybe you know, uh, somewhere else to run an errand. The missing oncology center would suggest that they've then visited a sensitive location. So there is no perfect solution here about how to how do we do this and and how do we um, keep the information around movement, which we're interested in and trends, but really protect people who visit sensitive locations and the inferences that can come from that. You know, it's interesting, Marissa, because uh, Daniel Solov, the professor who put on that forum, just came out with a paper called Data Is As Data Does. And it's a fascinating read that, I, that really resonated with me because while sure there are sensitive locations, you also really need to look at the use of data and whether or not it's sensitive. So for example, you know, maybe in the aggregate, there is useful information to be learned around the impact of legislation on visits to women's health clinics. But in used in the aggregate, it doesn't seem that bad at the individual level, not good at all. And that's what we want to avoid. And so the concept of this paper is that you need to, you can't just regulate data itself. You need to be thinking about the use of the data. And that's something I really try to 
push with our engineers and our product team. We're not just thinking about the collection data, what could happen? What inferences could be made downstream? Are we using it for good? Could it be used for bad? Can an AG from a, a state that is prosecuting cases on abortion subpoena that information and use it against someone? Or maybe it's being used in a way to fund um, women's rights, women's health, services in another state because it's lacking in other states. So I think those are the questions that we really need to be asking ourselves about information and whether or not it's sensitive. If you're collecting data to try to figure out um, how people move through the world generally, not on the individual level, do you run a risk of when omitting specific locations a list of locations that have been deemed sensitive that will not be, will not show up as collection points. Do you risk drawing incorrect inferences for how people move through the world as that list potentially grows or morphs? We need a data scientist for that one. I think the answer is yes. Um, I understand that Foursquare is proactive with needing consent to collect information about an individual's cool. whereabouts. Yeah. But just in theory, kind of thinking about the legal problems surrounding differing legislation in different states, mm -hmm. how does a, a national or international kind of global company approach the conversation surrounding do we just meet the highest bar all the time or is it so nuanced that you have to really tailor to different locations and code as such? Like, how is that thought about in your experience? And you don't have to speak directly about Foursquare, obviously. I'm just okay. curious because it's an incredibly complex issue that's happening across all tech. I err on the side to tailoring to the most conservative view. And this goes towards my view on compliance programs. Most compliance programs are not staffed in a way that you can implement a compliance program for California and for Colorado and for the EU. So you gotta pick one and you go with the most conservative. Uh, I feel that way with location data too. And it, not only is it a resourcing issue, it's also my view a rights issue. So the EU has certain data subject rights. California has data subject rights. Where I came from in Wisconsin, there is no privacy law. I would have no privacy rights. If I truly believe that people have the rights to privacy, to delete, to access their information, I, don't, I ought not to be drawing boundaries around who has those rights. So I think you have to take a position. You're either all in or you're not really playing the privacy, well, you're not really living privacy in action. Yeah, I have kind of the same question surrounding people's movements into different jurisdictions. So I addressed this question, it was really funny because the interviewee refused to answer, which is totally fair, about implantable devices. So like, how do you handle information being collected on an individual 
who say received an implant in one space, but is actually a resident of, or is going to a different location, but that device goes with them with something like geolocation data or just data in general, how is it handled when the person is mobile and their phone is mobile, right? So like it's moving into different jurisdictions. Like how do you determine, I guess, how do you approach that question? The, it's a, it's a great question. And where I see this often come up is when we're looking at state laws and when I'm getting asked, well, how do we know that the person is from California if they have, let's say a Foursquare account that says they were in Washington at the time they created the account, but now they're saying that they're in California. It's a great question. Do you go by where a device might be pinging right now or where they, set up the device. You, know, This is one reason why you just respect rights globally and fair to all. It's also an issue um, that I know is something that's being discussed among number of AGs in light of the Dobbs case. What happens if the AGs from one state subpoena data from a clinic that's out of state? to look at whether a person from their state traveled. I think there's all sorts of legal issues there. So we talked a lot about legality issues. We know that they're always top of mind for in-house counsel. And you did touch a bit on, you know, having to weigh product slash business development and um, needs of the organization against legal issues and potential legal problems. But I would love to hear how you approach the ethical question within product development and law, like it's this kind of triangle, right? And there's there may be conflicting needs at each point of the triangle. So as legal counsel, how do you approach ethical considerations in the space? It's a, it's a great question. And I feel like it's one, it's a muscle that I've been building throughout my entire career. And I talk about this with my team as well, because I do think it's a team sport. Everybody comes with a different view on privacy, a different sensitivity, a different level of comfort. And that's really important when we're having some of these tough conversations in the privacy space. Sometimes I may take a view that's a little bit more business friendly, but when I talk with my team, I get an entirely different perspective from someone who specializes in the consumer space or someone who specializes on employee rights, for example. And so I think having those different voices in the room is absolutely critical to having a successful discussion around ethics. Now, some parts of an organization, it's their job to push the boundaries. And when you work in-house, you you learn to expect that. Uh, interesting, there is a big difference between being in private practice and working in-house and, and having done both. I definitely prefer the latter, but when you're outside counsel, you get brought in on specific issues. You may not know how they turn out because in-house counsel will take it and resolve it internally. You're also not as committed to the answers. You're a little bit safer giving the best practices as opposed to what actually can work. When you're in-house, you see what systems are there, what tools are there, what resources are there. And certainly you never, I've always said that compliance with the law is not optional. 
So that's just a baseline that we're not going to negotiate over. When we get into things like, well, should we? I think about things, you know, what is the legal risk? What is the reputational risk to the company when this happens? How quickly can we implement um, mitigations? Sometimes you don't get to start in the place that you feel the most comfortable with, but you can work to put together a plan to get you there. And so what I've found with working in-house is you always need to be thinking about how to adjust your plan, how to meet someone halfway to find the place where, okay, I can tolerate this risk. I have a path forward. We're agreed on that. And let's work towards implementation. I've also found that that's the way you develop relationships of trust in-house, which I think is critical. If you don't develop that, the legal team becomes, or the, the compliance or privacy team come, becomes the place of no, the, the place where ideas go to die. And so if you don't show willingness to work with teams, you're not going to have any success. They'll start making decisions without you. You won't have a seat at the table and your job will be that much harder. I do think also, you know, certainly in tech space, the, the ethical issues are challenging. We've had a lot of discussions recently, as I'm sure you have, about chat GPT and other types of AI tools out there and the legal implications. We don't know. We don't know what the legal implications are going to be. We're all just guessing. But it's my job to be thinking about how this could impact consumers, enterprise clients, our employees. Um, my colleagues are thinking about copyright issues and whether or not our, our data is safe, our, our code is safe. So there is no easy way to make a risk determination. I would say there's a lot of factors that come into play, but for me, it's really about having a number of voices in the room, listening to those voices, developing the relationships and showing an ability to be flexible, um, but never putting the company at so much risk that you wouldn't be able to recover. It's so interesting that you mentioned like the security and like safety of data. Um, I think it's really easy to forget that the mechanism by which we actually keep privacy private is cybersecurity. <laughs> um, and there are ethical considerations surrounding how you are able to actually secure data and secure code um, that also probably get thrown at you. So that's really interesting. I, it's a whole different aspect that I just like expanded my brain into and I'm now lost in. Well, to, to give you a little bit more to think about too, at the, at the moment, cybersecurity is reporting into me. Um, we're, we're waiting on a new person to take over that org. As I'm sure they're very happy and excited about given that they are far more technical than I am. You're right. Uh, you can't have privacy without security, period end of story. What's really interesting to me though, and I've seen in the past, uh, in, in my past life, is the tension between privacy and security as well. So you, the way to protect data sometimes is to monitor what is going in and out of a corporate environment. What does monitoring mean? Over your emails, over Slack, over things like that, that introduces employee privacy issues. And um, in the US, there's some issues with employee monitoring, including uh, um, 
uh, wiretapping or electronic monitoring laws. And then in the EU, there are significant laws around employee monitoring. And so it's really interesting. You can't have privacy without security, but there's a tension there as well. Yeah, and I actually worked within a cybersecurity team and my um, boss was the chief information security officer. And he would always say the safest data is the data that we don't collect, which is yes, true. Right? If you don't have it, nobody can take it. That's, that's one of the first questions we always ask. My team always asks, why do you need it? And if there is not a legitimate answer to why you need it, and I will push, why, why, why? If it's not there, I tell them, I don't, I don't see why you need this. Do it without. 90% of the time they can. I love that answer. Let's take it up to a little bit of a lighter level. Do you have any hot tips for newer young attorneys that are interested in getting into the data privacy space? Yeah, I think this is a, a great space to be in right now. I'm really glad I made the transition from global trade to, which is also a hot space, to privacy. This, this space is not going anywhere as technology continues to advance faster than the laws for people getting into this. I think an interest in privacy, keeping up on current events, you don't have to read all of the legislation. I mean, privacy issues are in the news every single day. Stay on top of that. Understand how privacy touches on different parts of an organization. Having an understanding of how technology works. You know, what is an SDK? How do APIs work? How is data collected? That's also really helpful and something that I certainly look for when I'm recruiting for my team, having that understanding of technology and how data can be used. But I think just having a passion for it and understanding how, the, uh, this isn't about how to use data in my view, it is about how to protect people from the illegitimate or unauthorized or unexpected use of their data. And I think just being that advocate for people is fundamentally what ought to drive you. And if that's something you're passionate about, I think you're well-suited for this career path. Yeah, one of the reasons that I love privacy other than autonomy, um, which is kind of my driving thought behind privacy, um, just the ability to have an autonomous existence that you're in control over, is just that you have to project forward. Like you really need to be able to kind of think about not just where's the law going and where are trends going, but where could this possibly go wrong in the future or where could it go right in the future? How can we make people's lives better in the future by utilizing data? Um, but on the flip side, how are people's lives being made worse through the use of data? It's probably my like sci-fi dystopian lover brain that goes into the, all of the ways that this could go wrong. But I think it's one of the most exciting things about privacy is it's just constantly evolving and we really do need to be able to think about it in such a fluid manner. Mm -hmm. Um, it keeps you on your toes. One of the, yeah, it's very Black Mirror, the episode where you get the, uh, certain number of points according to social, oh, yeah. Yeah, your social presence, things like I, I think about that sometimes. I think, you know, one of the hottest fields out there right now is privacy engineering. And one of the areas that I just find fascinating and I really push our engineers on is, is, is privacy engineering and things around ephemeral IDs. How do you change IDs after a certain period of time? So you give people that opportunity to be more anonymous. How can you swap time periods so that travel during one week is not representative of another week? Uh, differential privacy, how do you introduce noise? Uh, there's a lot of work um, 
following the Dobbs case, the Flow app introduced an anonymous uh, way to use their app. And if you dig into that functionality, it's fascinating. It's way over my head and I need engineers to do that, but it's, it's really interesting. So it's cool to see, not only are you learning every day, there's new uses of data and AI, but there's also new privacy enhancing technologies that are being developed. And that's a really hot space right now. So that's cool to see. Agreed. I'm so excited to, to start working. Um, (laughs) Wait till you fill out your timesheet the first time. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not excited for time tracking. I'm excited (laughs) for spending my time working rather than studying. Um, It's all fun and games and interesting to think about these things in the theoretical space, but I'm so itching to get back into the actual like applicable use of information and really doing like work that has an impact outside of just my grades. So All right. My last question is, you know, we are four weeks away from the end of our semester. It's the spring semester. I am sure that I'm not just speaking for myself and I'm probably representative of the general student body vibe at the moment. Do you have any interesting recommendations for any type of media? So be it television, radio, podcasts, um, books, trashy magazines, anything for law students who really need some brain junk food right now? So I won't give reading because I've been kind of on a you know leadership learning book type of uh, binge at the moment. I love true crime. And so the Morbid podcast is one of my all-time favorites. I love that. Succession started back up. Uh, and so if you have not watched that, highly recommend that show. Uh, was big into The Last of Us, Pedro Pascal and... Um, wow, that was an amazing show. And then I did feel the need, having never watched it in the past, but seeing all of the news around Scandal and Vanderpump Rules, I am currently binging Vanderpump Rules. Uh, Lots of privacy issues in Vanderpump Rules and everything on Bravo. So that is mind-numbing and uh, maybe don't watch it before the bar exam. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Or maybe to like, you know, turn your brain off while yeah. studying for the bar. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Liz, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Good luck to everyone. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. And thank you again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station, broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Pettides and yours truly, Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to our advisor, Podvocate alum Radhika Sutherland and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support that make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been another episode of The Podvocate.